I am a conflicted omnivore. I dote on my pets, speak to them like people, and think of them as members of my family. At the same time, I remain a meat eater and a cheese eater and do so without significant concern. Apparently, I am not alone. My name is Mike Von Massow, and this is the Food Focus Podcast. Today's episode is actually a discussion with Hal Herzog, the author of the book, Some We Love, Some We Hate, Some We Eat, Why It's So Hard to Think Straight About Animals. We recorded this for a seminar with the Campbell Center for the Study of Animal Welfare at the University of Guelph. We talk about how we think about animals and how we rationalize how we think differently about different animals. I enjoyed the conversation and believe you will too. Hello and welcome to uh, today's seminar. Uh, I'm My name is Mike Von Masso. I'm a faculty member in Food, Agriculture and Resource Economics and I study how people think about food. Uh, I'm excited today to have a conversation with uh, Dr. Hal Herzog, who is our guest today. And Hal, welcome. By way of introduction, Hal is a leading anthrozoologist, a professor emeritus in psychology at Western Carolina University. He is the author of this book through which I discovered uh, him, Some Animals, Some We Love, Some We Hate, Some We Eat, Why It's So Hard to Think Straight About Animals. And I think you should also uh, check out his blog on psychology today, Animals and Us, where he he writes uh, short pieces on different perspectives and some studies on how we think about animals, how we interact with animals, and I and I think it's always a worthwhile read. So, Hal, I appreciate you being willing to sort of take a, a slightly different or modified approach to uh, to doing a seminar, which I think is going to be fun, and I think it's also going to be nice that at least you and I will be able to see each other, which might make it a little bit more engaging, if not for everybody, but at least for the two of us. Thanks for having me. It's great to, great to be in Guelph. <laughs> yeah. Today's seminar is part of a regular series that the Campbell Center for the Study of Animal Welfare puts on, and uh, I suggested we have this conversation, so I'm pleased that I'm able to participate in it. So Hal, let's get right to it, and I'm going to give you a confession here. I am a conflicted omnivore. I love to barbecue steaks, I eat chicken, I eat fish, pork, although less and less all the time, if I'm honest. Uh, I have two dogs upon which I dote shamelessly and who are spoiled rotten, and I can't imagine eating dog or cat, although I know people do. Am I a hypocrite, and am I alone? Oh, well, let's let's take a look at the, uh, it's the two of those separately. Uh, are you a hypocrite? Yes. Are you alone? No, uh, and I, I don't. I don't like the word <laughs> because I'm in the same moral bind you are. Yeah, I, I was maybe I being like, harsh. <laughs> that, that, is, that, is, that is that is pretty harsh. You're a conflicted arm, uh, omnivore, and what makes you different than most omnivores is most omnivores are not conflicted at all. They don't make the connection, or they don't. They deny the connection between loving their dog and then loving to eat. Uh, an equally intelligent, intelligent cow. So that hypocrisy that you talk about is really the, the human the, the, the human condition. We can see it empirically. So, for example, polls have shown in the United States that about 60% of Americans, if you ask them the question, do you think that animals should have the same rights as, to live as a human? About 60% of Americans say yes on that. Well, 95% of Americans think that animals have a right to live and that we have a right to eat them. 
And those two things don't go together in this case. Yeah. <laughs> How do we then rationalize that? And I think I've heard you call it that meat paradox, that the, the, the fact that we, we believe animals, you know, we feel positive emotionally towards animals. We, we feel like all animals have a right to live, as you said, but we at the same time think we have a right to eat meat and we do so quite happily. Yeah, the uh, way that we rationalize that has been nicely described by social psychologists as the four ends. And the four ends are, uh, this is sort of the, the intellectual defense of eating meat. Number one is that it's natural. That is to say, we evolved from a line of meat-eating apes, our closest relatives, chimpanzees, love to eat meat, although they don't eat that eat that much of it. So that that it's only natural that we eat meat. We're natural meat eaters. And by the way, I think my personal view is that there's some truth to the argument that humans are natural meat eaters. That does not make it, however, an adequate moral defense. Philosophers are well aware of what's called the naturalistic fallacy. There's, there's tons of things in, that are common in the natural world that are just terrible. And so we don't want to turn to the natural world for moral guidance. One of the other ends is that it's normal. That is, most people do it. I'm just like everybody else. And the question is, is it normal? And the answer is, yes, it's absolutely normal. So in the United States, normal in the statistical sense, in the United States, roughly 95% of Americans eat meat. Furthermore, most vegetarians eat meat every day and still think of themselves as, a veget as vegetarians, interestingly enough. Uh, the third end is that it's necessary. That is to say that we need to consume animal flesh to remain healthy. Uh, that clearly is not true. I have tons of vegetarian friends who are not only healthy, they're healthier than I am, in part because they don't, they don't eat meat. And finally, the fourth end is that meat is nice. That is to say, it tastes good. And I'm like you. Uh, I appreciate <laughs> uh, barbecue. I eat chicken, although not as much as, not as, much as I used to. And my only justification is for meat, for eating meat, for eating animal flesh, is that I like the way it tastes. Now, that is a terrible moral justification. It's simply a personal preference of mine. So I'm not a moral, you know, I don't have the moral high ground. You know, I don't get arguments with people about the ethics of eating meat because I will lose that argument every time. Yeah, that's that's, that's interesting. And, and the four ends make a lot of sense to me. And I've I, I've made those arguments, I think all of those arguments <laughs> over my course, the course of my life. Uh, and so it struck me when you said normal, a couple of things struck me when you said normal. The first is that lots of North Americans eat meat as a regular thing so that it's, it's, it's essentially normal. I don't know if this is true, but I, I wondered if, in fact, more people eat meat then keep pets, then have that sort of emotional attachment across the globe, not in North America or not in the developer, that have this sort of emotional attachment to animals as sort of pets and companions. Is that true or is it, or is, are pets as companion animals pretty common? That's a very interesting question. And I'm going to just make a guess on this. And uh, I've looked at the statistics on both of those and I've never thought about starting to do a statistical analysis, I would bet pretty strongly that there is a, a moderate to substantial correlation between meat eating and pet keeping. And I think it's related 
not to ethics, but to economics, is that uh, wealthier meat eating is directly related to per capita income in a country. The more the more money you make, a nation makes, the more they eat, the more they eat meat. Similarly, wealthier countries tend to have more animals as pets in their homes. Now, a lot of times there's there's poorer countries that have lots of, for example, dogs around. But there's, but there's enormous, there's more culture. And, and another point is that there's huge cultural differences in both of these things. Let me give an example. Let's take keeping dogs as pets. In the United States, and I think this is also true of Canada, there's about 250 dogs, pet dogs, per thousand people. On the other hand, in Egypt, there's about three dogs per thousand people. And the same thing we see with meat in the United States, and again, I suspect this is roughly true in Canada, if we include fish, we consume about 240 pounds of flesh per person per year. On the other hand, in places like India, they consume about 10 pounds of flesh per year on average. So we have these enormous differences in both pet keeping and meat eating that are just stunningly large. The culture plays an enormous example. And I would think there is a relationship, but I'm not sure it's related to the degree of sentience and attachment as it is simply money. But I'm not sure. Okay, that's an interesting point. And I hadn't thought about it. And what you say makes a lot of sense in terms of, I know that meat eating is strongly correlated to income. And so, you know, as we see some of the developing world income increasing, and we've talked about China a lot as a huge market for meat proteins, But by the same token, that's probably a lot to do with pets as well. You raised a point, a couple of points about sentience. Does the average, and I know this is something that that many of the people listening today will be interested in, does the average meat eater think about sentience or are we to a degree in sort of willful ignorance so we don't think about it? And the second part of my question is, do we differentiate? Do we attribute different levels of sentience to different types of animals? This uh, goes back a long way. And it goes back to, you know, well, the the person that that sort of discussed this the most in some ways was, was the philosopher René Descartes. And he argued that humans basically were the only sentient animal. That humans had minds, no other animals had minds. They were uh, basically biological automata. Uh, We don't feel that way anymore. And furthermore, recent advances in cognitive ethology have shown that animals, including even things like insects, are quite possibly way more sentient than we would have thought. Um, I think the idea of sentience has changed to some extent, even in the last 20 and 30 years, uh, because of keeping pet how we think of our pets. We've got this phenomenon called the humanization of pets, where we increasingly think of pets as people. And my guess is that the vast majority of pet owners think of the dogs and cats and birds in their lives as as sentient sentient creatures. Well, this, of course, creates a problem. Um, The animal rights movement is correctly based on the idea that uh, what what gives animals special rights is sentience, their ability to to think or their ability to, 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 you know, experience pain and suffering. So, so uh, if I get mad at my computer and drop it out a window, throw it out the window, smash it up, that doesn't pose any moral problem. If I did the same thing to my cat, 
it would pose a big moral problem because she's not in the same category as uh, because of because of sentience. Does that make sense? That that makes that makes a ton of yeah. sense. So the question is that you're raising is do we think of meat animals as less sentient than the dogs and cats in our lives? And according to recent research by social psychologists, the answer is yes. And so when you ask people, you know, questions about you know how you know how you know rate on a scale of one to ten, uh, how much do cattle experience emotion, emotions? How much do they uh, have the ability to feel pain? There's a substantial evidence to suggest that the animals we attribute less sentience to the animals that we eat than we do with the animals that are our companions. And the science doesn't necessarily bear that out. The science does not necessarily bear that out at all. Yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> I, recently, I recently saw a video of a, a pig uh, playing a video game. <laughs> and, uh, it's like I'm scratching my head. I really don't want to believe this. I really don't want to believe this. But it was right there in front of my eyes, and uh, it was hard to it was hard to deny. So yeah, there's uh, no evidence that a dog uh, is more capable of experiencing emotions or 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 pain or joy than a pig. It's interesting because for many of us, our experiences are anecdotal, right? We're not we're not. We're doing it through our own filter of perception, and our experience is not statistically significant. But I remember sitting in a restaurant once, in a seafood restaurant, and a friend of mine was ordering octopus, but gave it some pause because he had seen a video on YouTube of this octopus solving a complex problem, and this created this sort of tension, perhaps cognitive dissonance in his mind saying, well, this clearly has some level of intelligence to which we often attach the, the, the measure of sentence as well, and said, how do I feel about eating this? And, and in the end, he ordered it anyway, but uh, so, so it was also a conflicted omnivore. But it really struck me that, that he was rationalizing those and that many of us don't have a good sort of context for how sentient, I mean, would many people think differently about their bacon and tomato sandwich if they saw the pig playing video games? That's exactly right. Octopus are particularly interesting because they're invertebrates. They're in the same yeah. you know, large class as, as bugs, you know? So, so in the United States, uh, they're not considered animals under the Animal Welfare Act. However, in the UK, octopus Octopus do fall under the animal the animal welfare act. So here we have some national differences and uh, legal differences in the legal status of animals. Uh, as far as I know, they're the only animal invertebrate that's that's covered under uh, you know national animal care regulation. Yeah, the only thing about an octopus is they're basically like space aliens. I can relate to creatures with four legs, but eight, eight legs. And, and it turns out that the octopus's brain is, is distributed throughout its body, including part of its legs. So they're basically the weirdest creatures on Earth. You know, so, so it's just hard to wrap your head around. <laughs> I think you raise a really good point there that cute and cuddly makes a difference too in our perceptions of these animals, right? Yeah, one, one study found that, that when you ask people how much money that they would give to the protection of certain species, that the relative size of their eyes was the, big, was the, biggest, was the biggest predictor. Sure, yeah, that, 
the, you know, take, for example, the example I use in my book is comparing two Asian animals uh, that are both endangered. And one is the uh, giant panda. And uh, they are so, people care about them so much that they're the logo of the World Wildlife Fund. Well, there's another animal uh, also found in China, in China uh, even more endangered, which is the uh, giant Chinese salamander, which is a six foot long, basically a six foot long baggy bag of brown slime with little tiny beady eyes. They're the world's largest amphibian. I mean, they're this big. They're, they're bigger than this. They're this big. And they weigh, they can weigh 100 pounds, over 100 pounds. And you see these guys holding them like this. But they, you don't see them on as a logo of the World Wildlife Fund, the giant Chinese Yeah, salamander. and most of us haven't heard uh, about them. So cuteness, cuteness. It matters the best that cuteness counts, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> Mike, let me raise another point about cuteness. Cuteness can also work against animal welfare. And it's just been announced that the second most popular dog uh, for a pet in the United States is the French Bulldog. And these dogs have been bred specifically for these brachycephalic, pushed-in faces, which have enormous welfare problems. And in any rational world, we would not be breeding animals. And I know some of, some of the listeners will have these dogs as pets, um, but in terms of the pain and suffering associated with breeding for cuteness or anthropomorphic tendencies, we've created animals that are prone to suffering. So cuteness, you, you would not want to be a French bulldog, I don't think. That's remarkable because we are essentially breeding them for our, our appeal without considering the quality of life that animal has. We're breeding them for genetic deformities. It's interesting, too, because we have built these differences right into our language. You know, it struck me it's more stark in other languages, but even in English, you know, we have feed for cattle and food for dogs and cats. And so we even sort of distinguish that Dogs and cats eat food like we do. It might be slightly different, although table scraps may happen all the time. But cattle and pigs get feed that is produced in a feed mill. So that we've even made these, these distinctions historically in language, again, probably to continue to rationalize some of these differences. That is a really great point. Let's take an issue in Canada, which is the I will use the word that wildlife managers, the harvesting of baby, uh, baby heart seals. And to a wildlife manager, that's called harvesting. To animal rights a- activists, it's called massacre and slaughter. And so we have, yeah. we have and, I've, and I've looked at the literature in both areas. And it's, it's the, the, the language which was used to describe the harvesting, slaughter, whatever of seals is really quite dramatic. And it also affects the um, what we call the animals that we eat. So, for example, we call uh, eating cow you know, beef. Uh, we call eating pig pig flesh. We call pork. Uh, we call baby cow cute baby cow flesh. We call veal. We don't bother with fish and chickens. We don't bother to change it. And then, what I really love is the way that the uh, industry has repackaged even animal parts. Like chicken fingers. <laughs> now I didn't know chicken fingers, or you know chicken nuggets. And so the way these products are packaged, you don't 
see them as actual creatures. When I was a when I was a kid, when my mom went to buy chicken, she would buy a carcass. She'd go to the store and she would buy a you know a hunk of stuff that looked like a like a like a chicken carcass, a plucked chicken carcass. That there most people nowadays, you simply get a styrofoam package with something called a, you know a chicken tender or a whatever it is. It does not look like a piece of flesh. It looks more like a piece of like a pale vegetable. Yeah, <laughs> it's interesting because that that sort of disconnect I think is very real. I had a colleague who taught a fourth year capstone course in hospitality to restaurant managers, and and one of his priorities was helping students understand sort of the value chain, where food was coming from, how food was produced, and he stood in front of this this fourth year. 22, 21, 22-year-old group of students and said, where does this chicken come from, right? Like you say, it's it's styrofoam package, it's boneless, skinless chicken thighs. <laughs> yeah, where, where, where does this come from? And there was a stunned silence in the room. Uh, and, and then someone sheepishly put their hand up in the back row and said, the fridge. Uh, and so... <laughs> 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 and so I think to a degree, we'll get back to my comment on willful ignorance. You've got this this sort of divide where we, like you say, we don't have a whole, we rarely buy whole chickens, although we do in our house once in a while to roast, that, that many people can completely rationalize away where that came from because of that disassembly and, and reformation into nuggets, shall we say. Let me mention one sort of sort of irony. Uh, one of my first studies, in fact, was the study that got me into anthrozoology and out of animal behavior, was a part of my doctoral dissertation uh, was was on the culture of cockfighting. It started out being on genetic differences in chickens, and it then turned out to, to be a study of the, the culture and psychology of cockfighting. And so I spent two years hanging out with uh, illegal rooster fights in western North Carolina and East Tennessee. And interviewing cockfighters, every cockfighter that I ever met had thought pretty seriously about the ethics of fighting chickens, raising and fighting chickens. And these are animals that they really did care about in some very paradoxical ways. And I had a hard time wrapping my head around. I think I finally sort of understood it. But the the average cockfighter had thought way more about animal ethics than the average chicken eater. They had they had rationalizations for cockfighting. Granted, they were wacky rationalizations, and I did not buy their <laughs> rationalizations. But at least, at least, if I went up to a rooster fighter, I said, "Like, all right, tell me this is this is a brutal sport. You know, everybody thinks you're you guys are a bunch of bunch of whack jobs that were out to torture chickens. You know, tell me why. Tell me why. You know, give me your justifications. Oh, they could rattle out a whole series of justifications. The average meat eater, the average chicken here." It's like the student. Well, where do they come from? They come from the refrigerator. Yeah, that's exactly the level of moral sophistication that many people deal with when we talk about meat. That's interesting. So you said that these cockfighters really cared about these birds. That they were invested in these birds. They had spoiled yeah. them. They've given them special feed, and oh yeah, but they sent them off with spurs on to uh, kill or be killed. Uh, kill or be killed, and uh, they knew that if they took, a, they would raise these roosters on average. They, they fight when they're two years old, so they had these roosters for two years. They treated them like you know thoroughbred racehorses, and when they took them to the, the fights on a Saturday night, they knew that half of the roosters, if they were lucky, half of the roosters would come back, and the other half would wind, would be tossed tossed into a pile of other dead roosters. Yeah, unceremoniously. 
how much do you think that the urbanization or the de the move away from agriculture because i i, I live in a community of 12 or 15,000 and 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 hardly urban and i look at most of the people in this community have no idea how food is produced so this isn't a downtown toronto issue but there's a real sort of disconnection from where food is produced does this make it easier for us to rationalize i mean we see dogs and cats all the time even if we don't own them but we rarely see pigs or cattle or even live chickens and again it gets back to the chicken comes from the fridge does that d- d- does that make it easy for easier for us to rationalize going forward i think it absolutely does and i think that you, you we have a paradox there that the farther we the more distant we've been become from the animals in our lives the more we have humanized the animals that we do live with the uh, the dogs and cats and you know and, and turn them into little people you know to me some of the most interesting people i know in terms of their 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 relationships with animals for example hunters and to be a good hunter and i'm not a hunter so i don't completely under, under i don't understand it really but the people that i know that are hunters they have enormous respect for the animals that they hunt and i know some people will completely disagree with me on that. That's my experience. To be a good deer hunter, you have to think like a deer. And there's a certain honesty that comes with that. Does that make sense? They cannot deny what their sport and their sport, quote unquote, is about. And it's, it's interesting to me, some of the people I know that care the most about animals devote an enormous amount of time to trying to kill them. And I'm not talking about bozos either. I'm talking about people with uh, PhDs in, in uh, organismal biology. Yeah, it's interesting because personally, I've struggled a little bit with, with the concept of, uh, of hunting. I mean, clearly, I can't tell people not to hunt if they're going to eat the food because I'm, I'm willing to have someone else kill it for me. <laughs> so, uh, so, so I personally find trophy hunting abhorrent, you know, where, where we're killing purely for sport. And so, I mean, clearly we all have these lines, I was going to say lines in the sand, but lines in our mind of what's acceptable and what isn't. And, you know, I have another friend who's, who's a vegetarian, but will only eat meat if he's been willing to hunt it and kill it himself and says, I don't want to eat something if I'm not willing to, to do that, that element of it myself. Well, let me suggest another reason why your your vegetarian hunting friend, which I love that idea, by the way, I would I would interview that guy and put him in the next edition of my book, you know. But but I, I, he's also got the moral high ground because think about it, uh, think about let's say you uh, you kill a deer, the deer the deer we presume had a reasonably good life uh, out in the woods, lived a normal natural life out in the woods. And then let's say your hunting pal is a good shot, and then suddenly the lights go out. It, compare that to the life of a chicken who, who spends its entire 42-day life jammed, jammed in a, a grow-out pen with 30,000 other chickens in a house that he never sees the sun, lives a life of chronic leg pain because their breasts have been so heavy that their legs can't support them very well. 
So give me, give me your hunter has got your your hunting pal in some ways has the moral the moral high ground. Now if he's if he's a bad shot, that changes that changes things. But still, I, I think, and again, I'm not a hunter. I've never shot and killed anything. Uh, I don't have the patience to be a good hunter. Uh, but it's not because I disagree with it on on moral grounds. Although I agree with you completely about 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 trophy hunting. But it, but it does re- raise an interesting paradox. In some ways, eating eating that deer is way more moral than eating a chicken McNugget. Yeah, that's true. I hadn't I hadn't thought about it in that way. I want to leave people some time to ask questions. So I'm going to ask just one or two more. Uh, Is there an evolution in how we are thinking about animals? Is it changing? Do you think that we're becoming more conflicted, less conflicted? What are the dynamics there? Yeah, boy, I've thought about this and I've thought about this. And I think, you know, I can only talk about my own culture and my culture and Canada culture are pretty, pretty similar. I think, you know, um, I think things are changing. We are expanding this moral, we are expanding this moral circle. Um, half of Americans probably true of has, this is true in the UK is probably true in Canada as well. Uh, for example, now oppose the use of animals in research. And there's been a consistent decline in the number of people that support, support the use of animals in research. The almost the, the decline of, of circuses, of uh, traveling circuses, which include animals, is the biggest success of the animal rights movement has been 25 years ago, 30 years ago, in the United States, we were killing, euthanizing about 25 million dogs and cats in animal shelters each year. Now we're down to less than, less than 2 million a year. So the spay and neuter movement, we don't have any stray animals in the United States anymore. So we have seen this. On the other hand, the campaign to get people to stop eating animals, which is by far, you know, agriculture, you know, eating factory farming is the biggest source of animal suffering. Our consumption of meat hasn't changed, hasn't, hasn't changed at all. So to me, there's this, this real mix match. You know, compare that to the campaign to get people from stopping smoking cigarettes. Uh, 50 years ago, in the last 50 years, the number of Americans that smoke cigarettes has dropped 70%. The number of Americans that eat meat has dropped in the same time, about 2%. So we have this, this, this paradox. On the one hand, our moral circle is expanding. On the, on the other hand, our appetites for meat have not changed. And if you look at it globally, it's expanding dramatically. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, that's, that's exactly true. Now, I told you one last question, which may take away, uh, one question away from the audience, but I'm going to take it as my prerogative to ask. We've talked uh, so far about some we love, some we eat. We, we didn't really talk about those animals we hate. And, and we do think differently about those, you know, rodents and, and other pests. Is there something different about how we think about those animals too? Yeah, and in part, yeah, that, absolutely. And we thought about this, and so, you know, it's like, why do we why do we hate some animals and not others? Is difficult. In, in some in some cases, it, there is an irrational quality about it. For example, a fear of snakes, you know, hating snakes, one of the most common animal fears. Uh, your chances of getting uh, killed by a snake are about a hundred times less than they are being killed by a dog. Um, <laughs> So, or, or seriously injured by a dog. Some animals we, we, I think we don't like 
because they have uh, disgusting habits. For example, uh, you know, vultures, animals that eat that eat dead things. And some let's take let's take dogs. Dogs fall into the category of animals that we love, we hate, and we eat. And uh, so, for example, in, in our cultures, we love we love dogs. And uh, Korea, for example, they eat dogs. But in places like Kuwait, they despise dogs, and they're seen as disgusting because, in part, because of uh, in Islam, some parts of Islam, dogs are considered to be unclean. Uh, in part, because they're said to eat corpses and have sex with close relatives. So, uh, so even animals, even the animals that we define as disgusting, are not necessarily universal. And the same animal, for example, a dog's a good example, can be you know, loved and adored in one culture and just you know, despised in another culture. So culture, I, I guess the thing that surprised me, the thing I've changed my mind about over the last 10 or 15 years, is I, as I think for much of my career, I downplayed the role of culture in our interactions with animals. And in the last, in, in recent years, I've become more and more aware of the impact of culture and society on how we look at other creatures. Yeah, it's interesting. It, you highlighted that, you know, dogs, some some places there we hate them, some places we eat them, some places we love them. Uh, I think that we can even see some people who are conflicted internally and think differently because uh, for a podcast episode uh, a little more than a year ago, I interviewed some vegans just to sort of understand their thinking, understand where they're coming from. Funnily enough, when I had five vegans around the table, there were very different perspectives about why and, and those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. But but probably the most committed vegan at the table was also, you know, I will not eat insects if you start offering me insects, no harm ever to any living, breathing thing. But later in the conversation, when someone talked about cockroaches in their apartment, she had no compunction whatsoever to stomp on a cockroach that was invading her apartment. So again, clearly some differences in the rationalization there. So it's it's interesting. Hal, I very much enjoyed our conversation. Uh, I'd like to give uh, the people in the audience an opportunity to ask, ask some questions because I'm sure they're finding uh, your comments as interesting as I do. Before I do that, any last point you'd want to make? And otherwise, we'll turn it over to the audience for questions. The one last point would be is that, um, you know, the reason why I study human-animal interactions um, is because I, I think they reveal so much about human nature at a fundamental level. So the, 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 the moral complexities, the hypocrisies, you opened with the term hypocrisy, the H word, I think that characterizes so much of our ethical thinking and our, the, the, the complicated role of emotion and rationality. And, and so to me, the, the, the bottom line of this issue is, is how do we know how to wake up in the morning and get through our day and be a good person? As we wrap up another episode, I want to take a moment to thank Max Graham. We get to have the interesting discussions, and he does the hard work to make us sound good. I also want to thank Zach Von Masso for the original music that we use in the podcast. Check out foodfocusguelph.ca. We have a blog that is updated regularly and our Food Focus trend report as well. You can contact us through the website or at foodfocus at uoguelph.ca if you have any questions or suggestions. We appreciate our audience and your recommendation. It helps us grow. 
If you are so inclined, give us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Reviews move us up the ladder and help others find us. That's it for now. Thanks again for listening and stay in touch.